Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So we are deep into the business end of the World Cup in football or soccer, depending on which part of the world you're from, as we do this podcast. Um, But just to let you know that if you've clicked on our link and you're listening to this podcast it's not entirely about Qatar 2022 and that we hope uh, that when you listen to our interview with a man who I can only describe as the world's leading expert in goals and penalties, particularly penalty goals in uh, football, um, then you will be able to listen to this any time of the year, whether it's uh, World Cup time or not. But before we get into that, uh, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, is with me and uh, caught my eyes. There's a couple from our patrons, a couple of, of course, from Ross, but probably the biggest news story at the moment in the world of sport is what's happening in Kenyan athletics and uh, lots of drama there. Yeah, if you follow the sport, it would have caught your eye maybe two weeks ago that there was a meeting at that time planned for Rome I think it was and World Athletics were considering the possibility of banning Kenya in the same way that Russia got banned because of its systemic or systematic state-sponsored doping and the problem with Kenya is is a little different but ultimately puts you in the same place is can you trust the performances of athletes coming out of that country and you know that that's a big deal because the Kenyans win so many of the world's marathons and medals and I mean, I've, I've lost track. I remember reading an article in the days leading up to that Rome meeting in which they said that there were 40-odd Kenyans yeah. who, who were currently serving bands. And almost half of all the athletics bands are currently being served by Kenyan athletes. So they make up like an unseemly proportion of doping bands in the sport. It's, it's remarkable. Hard to keep track of, actually. Well, the latest is 55 athletes serving suspensions um, issued by the Athletics Integrity Unit announcing that, and a further eight provisionally suspended um, and awaiting the outcomes of their cases. So, yeah. yeah. So de- depressing in a way, but, but also not surprising. <laughs> Because Kenya's been on the list for a long time as a place that is uh, suspect. And in fact, WADA keeps a list of what they call, I think, Category A or, or, or uh, Class A countries where there is a high risk or a high degree of mistrust, maybe. Mm. And Kenya are very much at the top of that list. And so the question for, for World Athletics is, do we ban them? Um, now that obviously, I mean, it's a question. I, let me ask you that question. Should a country be banned on the basis of athletes within it doping? Well, the precedents, of course, already been set with Russia. Mm. And, um, you know, what they're saying now is that the Kenyan government are coming along and saying, well, we're going to do something about this. But I guess the question is, if, if it, is it systemic? In exactly. other words, is it, is it being controlled by a big group? In other words, either the federation or the country? Or is it just the fact that people are getting away with it within the structures of Kenyan athletics? Yeah, so is it is it 55 well, it's not 55 individuals with their own coach and that because we know that there are agents in common, there are coaches in common. And that's actually the thing that I would most like to see transparent about this whole Kenyan thing is because mm-hmm. I don't know how these 55 are connected, if at all. 
And so what I would like to see is a map like you see on your favorite uh, serial killer show on Netflix where you stick a pin in a map and you say, right, this is victim A, this is victim B, except in this case, perpetrator A, B. And who's in their solar system? You know, can we identify common people? Because that would go a long way to helping me understand whether this is something that's been happening for a long time, driven by three or four people or groups, or whether it's organic and entrepreneurial, for lack of a better word. And I think the response would be slightly different. There, there is a sense, I suppose, of injustice if you ban everyone on the on account of the behavior of some. But if some is half, then, then maybe it becomes less less unjust. Or do you actually just say, you know, what's the incentive for them to clean this thing up? If not the threat of a ban. And if, you know, you're a parent, if you make a threat and you make a threat and you make a threat and you never follow through, you become impotent. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a chance that world athletics become that. And so, yeah, it, it, from the signs of it, they ended up saying no to the ban option. But that was in part because the government committed to spending, they say, $5 million a year for the next five years to combat doping. Doesn't seem like a lot, to be honest, if does it, it? No, it's not. <laughs> I suppose the only saving grace is that it's such a such a precise pocket of athletes that mm. they can focus that on. But there are a hundred more athletes in that pocket. So actually, how far does your five million go? I don't know the economics mm. of anti-doping enough. But, you know, if the, it seems to me the Athletics Integrity Units are trying hard. And if they work with the government, then you can make hypotheses that Kenyans will get slower collectively mm. maybe it won't affect the top five or six but collectively the average of the top 50 canyons should get worse the time yeah you should see fewer canyons in the top three of major marathons if if doping is driving their success and anti-doping works that's the consequence it'll it's the inevitable outcome so that'll be interesting to keep an eye on but i mean what it does mean and a couple of those 55 are kipchoge's training mates some of them mm. were pace setters when he did his successful sub two yeah. And so by association now, you've got to say, okay, how much can we trust that performance? Yeah. Not 100%. There's no doubt. Anyone who says absolute trust is, is ignoring reality. Totally. But is it 0%? It's just so frustrating because – and, you know, the same thing played out at the weekend, actually. I got an Instagram message um, over, the, over the last few days about the Valencia Marathon. Yes. Yeah, Fast sub, sub 2.15 on the women's side. Yeah. Fastest debut ever on the women's side. Sub 202 on the men's side with a 60-15 half marathon to finish it. Mm. Fastest second half ever outside of the sub 2. It is famous for being a very fast marathon. So so it's fast, Mm. sure. Um, But that's nuts fast. Yeah, it is. And it's it's being done by people. The the woman who broke 215 was a 220 athlete before Mm. with a couple of 224, 228 performances since that. So it is an enormous increase. And we saw a South African uh, who has... Probably normally around a 2.30 marathon and running a 2.26 personal best there. So it was throughout the field a fast race. Yeah, so you could, you could, yeah. that's what you'd have to argue in order mm. to retain some degree of trust in the performance. You've got to say fast course, ideal conditions, shoes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, on the other hand, you know that this is all happening and it's okay, that's in Ethiopian, but the situation in East Africa is similar in all those countries is that sure. access for testers is limited, it's expensive, it's predictable. They know when the testers are coming because they, they have to apply for passports and they have relationships that inform them. Yeah. And so avoiding testing in those places is is not the world's most difficult challenge. And if they, all else fails, you just run and jump over a wall and hide away, which has happened for some over there before. So so then with that in mind, okay, you look at this and you say, can I trust that 20150 odd with that 60-15 second half? Can I trust the five-minute improvement, six-minute something improvement by the women's winner? 
I don't know. Mm. And it's enormously frustrating. And again, the shoes are there. They're a, they're a red, either a red herring or the the driving factor, depending mm. on your perspective. It sucks. But these these cases suggest that there are performance, there is doping involved here. It's not shoes. It's it's not well, some mechanical doping. Involved. It's, so like yeah. like, yeah, exactly. So the yeah. improvement in performance is 3%. Yeah. What proportion of 3% is shoes and what proportion yeah. of 3% is doping? Mm. It could be you could slide that, that um, slider all the way from one end, say 0 to 100, or 100, to 100 versus 0. But maybe it's somewhere in the middle. This suggests that if you think doping is 0, you've, you've missed some major, major mm. developments. Mm. And it's, it's frustrating yeah. like because when I was a student reading your magazine, like not even a university, high school student, the Kenyan running phenomenon was maybe the most fascinating thing in the sport. It's mm. one of the things attracted me to the field. And now the Kenyan running phenomenon is without doubt tarnished mm. by this. Yeah. 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 What's interesting, I think, is that when you have the threat of a country ban, hopefully you get people within the sport becoming whistleblowers to those that are doing the noughties. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that's was that threat hanging over them will, will encourage people within the sport who are, are being clean to say, well, you know it's happening there, so investigate that. That's the key. And whether the intention from government is true, and a lot of governments will say, well, we're going to investigate this, but do they actually do that, is another question. Uh, it would be, I mean, the effect on world athletics and world road running would be enormous if the Kenyans were banned from and it would of course affect many of them at a very much a grassroots level because so many of them depend on that as a livelihood mm, you'd basically be sticking a cork in the pipeline yeah um remember when when russia was banned they made exceptions on individual for individual cases on application so remember cas had to convene emergency hearings and dozens if not more russian athletes applied to say that we should be exempt from the ban because of xyz i don't live in russia i haven't been there for four years i'm now based in miami or florida some whatever i remember that was one case mm. presumably they would allow the same for kenyans but then what does that mean does that mean kipchoge and the best athletes in the world the cost guys and so on have to relocate to another country in order to qualify i don't know yeah Anyway, it's moot because they didn't go yeah. forward with the ban. But you're right. There needs you almost you almost have to reach like a critical mass of mm. people who say no, in order for the people who are doing it to be tilted away from doing it. You know, like as you say, if the threat of being told on <laughs> is now so great because so many other people are getting defensive about their status, then mm. maybe that starts to shift the behaviour. But yeah. I'm just. You know, the government wrote a letter. Of course they will. They'll argue. Ken yeah. For Kenya, this is like they're on the map because of these athletes. Yeah. In the lead up to Rome, I saw that the cabinet minister spoke of the Kenyan athletes as assets, which is predictable, but in a way also a little bit disheartening because in effect they're commodities now. And if your commodity loses value because it's running slower, then it's be less. It's a less valuable asset. Yeah. So, so the, incentive the, there. they've got an incentive to optimize the asset. And how yeah. do you do that? Well, yeah. you give them good shoes and you dope them. <laughs> so yeah. it's a properly, properly difficult problem to solve. And I just, it's it, as I say, lousy because the physiology of the Kenyans is really interesting. Yeah. But the doping really. I yeah. suppose it's interesting. I mean, the most amazing thing when you bracket right down to it is that if they've gone ahead with banning Kenyan athletics, and, and they might do that six months, a year down the road, is that you won't see people like Elib Kipchoge racing in major marathons because yeah. he would be Kenyan. Yeah, unless he somehow, is, unless they create yes, those loopholes for these correct, guys. And but, I mean, that's that's the threat. Exactly. Yeah, and absolutely. think, as you pointed out, and you're right, um, six months down the line, you'll see the first wave, the first mm. ripple of that particular pebble. But... 
six years down the line, every 18-year-old who would be the sub-202 marathon runner mm. in 2028 won't be there either. Great, yeah. Was less likely to be there either. Yeah. So this is, yes, anyway, they, they managed to avoid the ramifications of, of that one. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they caught by us? Yeah, speaking of, and actually it, it continues along a similar theme, is I, I came across a tweet the other day from uh, Vern Gambetta on Twitter uh, linking to an obituary in the New York Times. So sad, this one. Werner Franke has died at the age of 82. Now, Werner Franke, for those who don't know, was a chemist who in the 1990s was responsible for unearthing and then revealing to the world the extent of state-sponsored doping in East Germany. And there's a very famous paper, Frank and Frank, his wife was a javelin thrower in that system. And they published the papers that documented exactly what had happened um, in those countries. And the story, I didn't realize this until I read this um, this obituary, is that he he subsequently became an anti-doping expert. But at the time that it happened, he was, as I said, married to this athlete. And they managed to get documents. They managed to get access to documents in a very narrow window. And it talks here about, I uh, just wanted to read this for you. Um, in 1990, Dr. Franke learned that classified documents outlining the doping drug program were stored in a military facility in Germany near Berlin, and he got a court order to review them. And then based on those documents, they wrote an article called Doping from Research to Deceit. And that was the one, for instance, where they revealed how much, in this case, a steroid called Turinobol was being given to a shot put athlete called Heidi Kriegler. They subsequently got documents in 1994, an archive of the Stasi, which is the East German secret police. That's the extent of that doping, by the way, talking of systematic. Um, the files revealed, among other things, the collaboration of doctors with the government. In the file of one particular doctor that included the drug protocols of athletes under his care, the doctor wrote, and this is ominous, for the majority of events, world-class performances cannot be achieved without the use of supporting means. That's, oh. And that's a euphemism for steroids. Oh. The files had a list that the Germans had produced of how much various athletes could improve by using steroids. So male discus throwers, they reckon 10 to 12 meters, 400 meter female runners, 5 to 10 seconds, and female javelin throwers, 8 to 15 meters. And I've, whenever I give presentations on doping, I cite this work that Frank mm. and them had, had, had produced. And so the point was, especially in women, they weren't just they weren't just giving them performance enhancing drugs, they were virilizing these women. They were turning them into <laughs> physiological males. Yeah. And uh, that's why so many of those world records go back to that period. And so, still, anyway. Still stand. Exactly. So, Franke then got involved. I didn't realize this either. In 2000s, he was involved in the Jan Ulrich doping case because he, he tried to speak out about that. He got access to the Spanish police files from that Ulrich investigation and linked it and so forth. Um, quote from Franke, I inspected the file on Jan Ulrich compiled in Madrid. And all I can say is that it's been some time since I've seen so much bad stuff. That was about the mid-2000s, late-90s, mid-2000s. It's a great summation, isn't it? <laughs> and, then, and then he was linked to Contador. So it's, mm. it's crazy. I, I mean, I've been to a few anti-doping conferences, and I didn't realize he was still active mm. because he was just doing this work. That's why so few people know him. But that's, anyway, caught my eye that Dr. Franco died. Yeah. So there you go. Pop yep. that. I'll pop that obituary in the show notes, and you can have a read of a, of a life of a very interesting and important man in anti-doping. Yeah. Yeah. So onto a more 
I guess a more pleasant subject for some of you who have been participating in our uh, soccer or football pool on Superbrew. The link is in our Twitter feed and obviously we put it on the show notes as well. Um, if you get stuck into there in the next uh, couple of days, you can probably participate in the last uh, 16. Um, but what's interesting about there, there have been some surprises. I thought I was doing pretty well until I didn't I picked Croatia not to win and they did. Um, and I think I lost uh, Switzerland last night as well. So it, it's it's just when you think you know a little bit about soccer, you realise that well, it's very easy to pick the the good games, but it's very hard to pick the marginal ones. Yeah, and so thanks to the patrons for playing. This has been fun. <laughs> I've been enjoyed fun. it. It's certainly enhanced my enjoyment of the football even more than it would have been otherwise. Uh, I sent the invite out to join the league before the pool stages were finished. So yeah. we've got a slightly messy situation that some of you have played the last four pool matches and then some of you only come in on the knockout phase. I will say that after the four pool matches, I, I had predicted not even a winner, never mind a score. <laughs> that was zero out of four, like com- complete zero. I'm lucky, I'm happy to say now that I've moved up slightly in, in the standings. So a little bit better. But yeah, just to someone who's not a patron, but he's, he qualifies to enter this because he's a cycling mate of ours, is winning at the moment, Simon. So from now on, Simon says the score, and most of the time he says it right. <laughs> uh, and then our, our, our highest patron is Squire, uh, who actually, uh, you can tell he's, a, he's good at this prediction game because in, in the app, he's the only one who's got his pictures and avatar. So that's how you know he's good. And Squire, Squire is Darby Esterhazen. So he's currently lying third in the knockout phase of the competition. Uh, Spain supporter condolences on on that one and then and then uh, neil neil lafferty who submitted a couple of questions in the past on patreon thanks for playing is currently in second among patrons and oscar hoy from australia is lying or rounds up our podium it's not Della, is it? so no just uh just no that's no, not uh supports australia Good tournament from them, I suppose. See, I thought I'd set a very good chance of doing well on this when we did our podcast with Omar Chaudhry um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, talking about what his predictions were. And he he has more access to more data than probably anybody in the world of football. But um, still, as it shows you, even a person with that amount of data, that amount of knowledge, still didn't get many of the predictions right. Although he still has Brazil in there, he said Brazil would win overall. Yes, and if you saw them dismantle South Korea in the first mm. half, that, that seems like a good bet. But when we spoke to him, remember, Spain hadn't yet played Japan, and then they lost that. Now they avoid the quarterfinal he predicted would predict the winner. Remember, he said mm. whoever won Brazil-Spain, and then Spain didn't make it past the quarterfinal against Morocco. So it shows you how fraught this is. And in fact, I was playing around last night, and I might do it if it's easy enough to do, is to enter four random number generators into our pool. I've already made the random number generator, but basically all it does is randomly guesses a score somewhere between zero and three for each team. And I reckon a random (laughs) number generator might beat me in this competition. That's how how badly I make these calls. I mean, who, yeah. And even even Simon, I think Simon has had four exact picks out of eight matches, which is good going. Absolutely amazing. But, uh, and by his own, uh, by his own admission, he's probably not a football expert. Well, he's looking. He's, at, a, he's, he's looking a casual watcher. Anyway, anyway, that's not. Yeah, so so we'll keep that going. If you want to join, obviously we've we've got some prizes. By the way, we're yes, going to give a little have. voucher uh, to our winner. We've actually decided to upgrade it, so we're going to give three year premium vouchers to 
any of our patrons that are participating in our um, in our uh, pool, and uh, that'll give you a premium uh, for Spotify for the year. So that'll be a great way to mm. listen to Spotify as a premium member. So we'll. Some way to go, obviously, to catch Simon. But what we will do is is give you a score breakdown of each round. But Simon's not a patron, I don't think. Well, so. okay, Squire Darby. Darby so Squire. is currently in pole position right, for that Darby. one. There don't forget. Go. Yeah. So, obviously, you've, got to, you, you've missed a few games now. Yes. Tough to make that up. But feel free to join it. It's fun to play. And we'll give you yeah. some score updates and next we time. T- we-, we won't tell Simon that unless he's a member, you can't win the prizes. Because <laughs> otherwise, he's going to quickly become a patron I'm of happy- the science I'd, I'd be most happy if he does, just as <laughs> I'm most happy if any of you listening to this and enjoy our work would like to become patrons exactly. and support what we do. So thanks very much to all of you again. Right, so on to our interview today, and uh, as you will listen in the next uh, hour and uh, almost hour and a half, uh, this is a fascinating discussion with a gentleman who is a British football journalist. His name is by the name of Ben Littleton. He's the author of news articles and books. He writes sports articles for a lot of major newspapers, including The Times, The Daily Telegraph, and The Guardian, and has written many books. Uh, the one book, which is probably the one that we're going to be focusing on the subject today, is called 12 Yards, The Art and Psychology of the Perfect Penalty. He's also written a book called Edge, What Business Can Learn from Football, as well as a series of football-themed books for children called Football School, um, which he's helped a lot. But uh, not only is he an expert and a very well-published journalist uh, working for many, many different publications, but his ability to communicate some very complicated but fascinating facts about a very niche topic, and that is the topic of football penalties, is something that I think Ross and I were talking about this after we finished the interview. I spent the whole podcast smiling, I realized, mm. because the stuff that he came up with and the bits of nuggets of information and his knowledge of the sport is so remarkable that he must be he must be the world expert on this. He has well, to be. I'm, the, I'm like you. If you could have seen us, I was laughing quietly inside out of enjoyment because he was yeah. telling these stories. And he, 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 I don't know how, it's like listening to a dynamic, exciting encyclopedia. Yeah. That's what, that's what it was. It was the most <laughs> fascinating journey into penalties, history lessons, science, psychology, everything you can imagine. E- even if you don't follow football and you haven't been watching the World Cup, this is, this is like poker meets game theory means a bit of football and all bundled up in like this effervescent storytelling. It's it's fantastic. Just give it a chance. And I wish we could actually show you the video because halfway through the video, you hear him describe how how it's very important to have something to hold. And there he is holding a football in his hands while he's talking to us and describing things very animatedly. But uh, enjoy Ben Littleton. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So Ben, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I'm always excited on this podcast to talk to a journalist as a journalist myself, because normally we have 
um, scientists and uh, data specialists and all those type of people. So it's lovely to talk to somebody who understands the world of journalism. And uh, I think what's fascinating about this is that you've you've made an art or a, or a, a reputation, I guess, on focusing on one element of the game, and that is the penalties involved in football. Uh, just, just tell us a bit about your background. How did you get into this speciality field of just focusing on the uh, on, on the penalties? Well, I agree that it is quite a niche subject. Thank you for having me on on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I am, as you can tell from my accent, um, an Englishman, proud Englishman and a fan of English football. And uh, my whole childhood watching England national teams was traumatised by the regular eliminations from tournaments on penalty shootouts. And every time England lost a penalty shootout, the coach would say the same thing. Oh, penalties are just luck. We were just unlucky. The shootout, it's a lottery. And so in 2012, when England lost on penalties, of course, to Italy at uh, Euro 2012, the coach, Roy Hodgson, said exactly the same thing. You can't train for penalties. They're just down to luck. We lost the shootout, but it's a penalty. It's a lottery. So what can we do? And for me, that was just one excuse too many. So I thought um, about whether he was right or not. And so I spent the next two years traveling the world, exploring the one question, are penalties a lottery? And I spoke to a player from every team that had beaten England on penalties. I spoke to goalkeepers that had saved penalties, strikers that had scored and missed penalties. I spoke to English players. I spoke to players from all across the world. I spoke to coaches. I spoke to doctors, I spoke to psychologists, um, I spoke to athletes from other sports, including cycling, golf, tennis, and NFL. And the biggest finding, and there were many, but the biggest finding that I had, would you believe, is that penalties are not a lottery. And that penalties are a trainable skill that can be improved. And that was basically the culmination of all this work. You can improve your chances of scoring a penalty if you treat it as a aspect of sport that can be improved, rather than passively saying, this is about luck, this is a lottery, this is something that happens to us, we have no agency, we have no control, it's just the way it goes. And that is, that is, what, is what had happened over... 22 years of, of watching England teams. And that was quite a big finding. And so to, to go into um, World Cups and tournaments now with a coach, who, by the way, has been traumatised. This is Gareth Southgate. Mm. <laughs> he knows the trauma better than most because he famously missed a penalty in the 1996 European Championship semi-final against Germany when the coach was standing around the centre circle, asking any players if they fancied taking a penalty. No one made eye contact. No one put their hand up. And so Southgate, being the decent guy that he is, said, OK, I'll give it a go. Having never taken one before, was in this position where he was the, the national scapegoat and responsible for this traumatic defeat. And so when he became England coach, one of the first things he, he said, and I think one of the most important things he has done in his whole reign as England coach is to try and rid the, the whole nation of this penalty trauma by saying we can work on penalties. We can 
improve our ability to score from 12 yards. And it doesn't guarantee that we will win a shootout, but it improves our chances. Ben, can I ask a question? When you embarked on your journey of discovery in 2012, a la Charles Darwin, um, around the <laughs> world trip, uh, I, I've, I've seen a little bit because when we hosted the World Cup in 2010, I, I played around with some stats on penalties and so forth, which is now going to be outdated and potentially displaced by some stuff we'll get onto. But a lot of the research on penalties precedes 2012. Why do you think the perception of it being a lottery would have persisted in the presence of data that already suggested that it wasn't? Well, that is a very good question, Ross. I think um, there was data around before 2012. It was pretty fresh. And I think the football world is not a progressive one and was very slow to take it up. And now we're in a position where we are overloaded with data and clubs and individuals and coaches are trying to manage the best way of using that data to help them. So a very simple top line of data in penalties, the average scoring conversion rate in a penalty in open play, which means during a normal match is 78%. Okay. So that's nearly four out of five penalties scored in this world cup in the group stages, the conversion rate is 64%, which is 11 out of 16 penalties, 64%. So it's already gone down. Mm. The players are better, but the pressure is higher. Okay, so that's why. And then, and in penalty shootouts, where we've only had two, so it's incredibly, all this is small sample stuff. The record of scored penalties in, in the first two shootouts we've had in this World Cup is seven scored out of 15. Mm. That's less than 50%. That's 47%. And that's because of the pressure of the World Cup. It's nothing to do with the player's ability. If, you, if you're playing for your country at a World Cup, mm. you are the top of the top of the top in your field. And a penalty is a free shot from 12 yards, which you really should score. So why are the players who are technically brilliant not scoring this free shot? And in fact, more likely to miss than score when it comes to a shootout is... Nothing to do with the technique is to do with what is above the shoulder, what is between the ears is mindset and psychology. And, and also, I dare say, and I, I don't want to only focus on the kicker. It's also got to do with the man between the posts on the other end of it. So we, we do want to explore goalkeeper strategy as well and look at both sides of the ball, as it were. But before we get on to those really interesting technical bits, when you went around, who did you find nation-wise or even individual player-wise who was really far ahead of the curve at that stage? I mean, which you spoke to all the countries that had beaten England, so you traveled a good deal and you discovered who to be the leaders early on in this area. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, Germany traditionally have a fantastic penalty record, but partly because they suffered their own penalty trauma as well, which happened in 1976 when they lost in the final of the European Championships to Czechoslovakia. And the winning penalty there was a Penenka scored by the original, the OG, Antonin Penenka, who had been practicing this specific kick for two years before the final. And it was a slow chip down the middle of the goal. And he was one of the first to realize that there were three options for a kicker to aim for. The left, the right, and the middle and most goalkeepers 
would dive left or right because if you stay in the middle you would probably know a lot about non-action bias but if yes. you stay in the middle it looks like you're not doing anything you've got to and earn so, your place in the squad earn your money correct dive. so I've spoken to goalkeepers, international goalkeepers, who said, I never like to stay in the middle for a penalty because then the fans get upset because it looks like I haven't tried. Whereas, whereas that is one of the three options for the for the strikers to hit the ball. And um, in fact, in Morocco's penalty win yep. over, over Spain, two of their penalties were down the middle. And so if the goalkeeper stayed down the middle for all of them, he would have had a chance of saving some of them. So the middle is an option. Germany were very good. And they, um, the players I spoke to from Germany said um, that, that the England team basically overthink it. And you are worrying too much about it. And you're going into these tournaments fearing it, which is true, which is true. Um, there's a history of England players who've spoken after tournaments where they've got to extra time and during extra time, They've been thinking, oh, my God, I really hope this game doesn't go to penalties. And if it goes to penalties, I might have to take one. And if I take one, it's going to be terrible. And if I miss, then I'm going to be you know, singled out for, for, for tragedy and, and humiliation. It's going to be awful. And then, of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this actually is what happens to, to, to quite a few of the players. And that's because they weren't preparing properly. They weren't prepared for it they were hung out to dry by their coach as well um and this whole concept of luck and and um the lottery reduced their power and their sense of agency and control over the whole situation the other country that's done really well in penalties is czechoslovakia and now czech republic i don't think they've lost a single shootout they've been involved in and they um Panenko himself said it's partly because they're a small country who don't take themselves too, too seriously. So see this as an opportunity as an underdog to be a bigger, a bigger opponent. But the more I travel, the more I realize that other countries also had their own penalty traumas, but just in a different way. So England's penalty trauma was very much wrapped up in its identity as an empire because the two seismic early defeats that England had on penalties were to historical, political, geopolitical rivals, right? Uh, Germany in 1990 and 1996, and Argentina in 1998. And partly because the media portrayed these matches pre-match as battles using military headlines and metaphors and imagery. So once England lost those shootouts, it felt like they had somehow lost a war, lost a, a, a part of themselves to these huge rivals. Whereas if England had lost to, say, Switzerland and Greece, I don't think it would have made that much impact. But then in other countries, it's a totally different story. Holland, for example, had a terrible record at penalty shootouts. And in Euro 2000, I think they they played Italy in a quarterfinal and scored one out of five penalties. They missed two in normal time and three in the shootout, I think. Um, and their trauma comes from a different source. And that source is Johan Cruyff, who is the godfather of Dutch football, the inventor of total football, and one of the most influential men in all of football history. But he hated penalties. And he felt penalties were not a true part of football. And he would 
rather hit the crossbar or the post because he liked the sound of it than score a penalty. And in fact, he was terrible at penalties. He only ever took two, I think. And one, he passed the ball to a teammate and the other, he hit over the crossbar. Um, and some people think that's because he didn't have a very powerful shot. But a lot of people think because it was against his ideal of what football should be, which is movement, space, intuition. But a penalty allows you to think. And that's where the problems come in. It's about um, you're stationary, you're static. And so then you can almost overthink it. And that's one of the reasons why I think Lionel Messi struggles from penalties as well, because part of his game and one of the reasons why he's so amazing and so extraordinary as a, as a player is because it's about his vision and he sees things five spaces ahead of anyone else. And it's so quick. But because a penalty is static, it's kind of boring for a genius. It's mm. too easy almost for these guys. So the Dutch um, mentality was, well, you get to a penalty shootout, but if you've been better in the game, it really doesn't matter if you win a penalty shootout or not, because penalties aren't even part of the game. And so historically, they would have a terrible record of penalties. They lost in the semi-final of the Euros in 1992 on penalties. They lost in the semi-finals of the World Cup in 98 on penalties. Um, and partly they just didn't care because like, wow, Cruyff doesn't care about penalties, so why should we? Mm. You're you know, preempting my you're preempting so many of my questions here. It's great. <laughs> I did want to say I'm gonna put a video link in the show notes for that original Panenka. Those who watched Morocco eliminate Spain last night, condolences to our Spanish supporting followers, would have seen the winning penalty there was something of a Panenka. He didn't he didn't get the elevation of the original and the Zidane 2006 final penalty kick but he he did it uh and then on this english thing there's actually a paper scientific paper published by gear jordan who i know that you know ben because you quote him often in your blog why do english players fail in soccer penalty shootouts a study of team status self-regulation and choking under pressure so that's a clickbait headline in a scientific <laughs> paper we do it too it's good journalism and uh basically i mean I'll, I'll put the links to this as well and it's it effectively confirms what ben's just said he uses england and spain to illustrate various effects relationships between team status self-regulation performance players from countries that at the time of the shootouts had international club titles or many internationally decorated players tend to perform worse because the pressure is greater and he talks about Highly favorable public appraisals of a team are linked to displays of escapist self-regulation and inferior performance. In other words, the more you shine the spotlight, the more you amplify the pressure, the more the guy is likely to underperform. So, so that's why as this tournament progresses, that will be interesting. You can actually undermine your team's chances by too much focus on how good they are. Right. I mean, there's there's quite a lot to unpick from, from what you've just said, Ross, but I'll try. I'll start with um, Hakimi's penalty and Zidane's penalty, because I'm really glad you brought that up. Chipping a penalty down the middle of the goal is a penenka, but there's a very precise definition of what a penenka is. And penalties are often mislabeled as penenkas. Um, and this is one of my big bugbears, even though I'm the only one who cares about it. Um, <laughs> Hakimi's penalty was a low penenka but I haven't seen the side angle to see how much elevation he got. But I think it's very important with a Penenka that the ball is dropping as it crosses the line. And I think Hakimi's might still be going up, but it is very close. I have no problem with calling that penalty a Penenka. Um, 
with Zidane's penalty in the 2006 World Cup, which was an open play penalty to open the scoring in that final, which was, of course, his last game as a professional. That was a penalty that was struck down the middle of the goal and hit the bottom of the crossbar yeah, on the way and then dropped down. So I'm in no way having that as a Penenka because the <laughs> ball was rising as it crossed the line. In fact, it was rising so much it hit the top of the goal and then went down. So for me, that is a penalty struck high down the middle of the goal. Also a brilliant penalty, but for me, not a Penenka. Uh, Hakimi's, I will... We, I think we can agree to grant that Penenka status. Fair. I'll, I'll, comes... I'll, I'll grant you the Zidane one also then. That's okay, better. thank you. Thank you. We agree, we agree <laughs> on those then. Yeah, yeah so fair enough. When yeah. it comes to um, Guy's or Dets research, which is brilliant, and, and he plays an important part in, in the research in my, in my book, 12 Yards as well. There are a couple of things that he really pulls out that are fascinating, both uh, from an English point of view and from a penalties point of view going forward in this World Cup. One is one why England constantly fail on penalties. And one of his biggest findings was that out of every nation who'd taken a certain amount of penalties in shootouts, England players have the quickest reaction time mm. to the referee blowing their whistle to start, the, to start their run-up to starting their run-up. Now, when a, when a referee blows his whistle to denote the penalty can be taken... Um, before a penalty in a shootout. He is simply signifying to the player, you can take the penalty whenever you're ready. It is not a starter's pistol, which means you must go straight away. But the England players traditionally would see it that way. So England players would react so quickly to the referee's whistle because they wanted to get it out of the way because it was a stressful time for them. It was highly stressful moment. They just wanted to rush it and finish it off. And in fact, their reaction time was less than a second. And it was similar to Usain Bolt's reaction time from when he hears starting pistol. So that's a correlation of failed penalties and speed of reaction. And even now we see missed penalties in shootouts. And often the player who misses is the one who reacts the quickest. So last year in the Euros, France lost to Switzerland in a penalty shootout. And I was watching it and I was thinking, oh, the France players have read my book. It's been translated into French. They've read it because Pogba's waited seven seconds. Giroud has waited five seconds. Kimpembe's waited four seconds. They're scoring all these penalties. And then the last penalty taker steps up and he waits 0.2 seconds and he misses. And it's Kylian Mbappe, right? Yeah. So the best player on their team, but the quickest reaction time. And it happened again in February, just gone, when Liverpool played Chelsea in the final of the a competition called the Carabao Cup, it's a League Cup. And this was an epic shootout because every player kept on scoring and it went to the goalkeepers shooting. So the Liverpool goalkeepers scored and the Chelsea goalkeeper stepped up and he missed and then I looked at the timings of these, uh, the wait times of the players and Virgil van Dijk waited like nine and a half seconds, which was a really long time. But Kepa, the goalkeeper who missed, waited less than half a second. And so it doesn't guarantee that you're going to score, but it sure does help just to take an extra breath. And one thing I've noticed that all England penalty takers do since 
2018, since Gareth Southgate came in, is that they wait an extra second. You see Harry Kane's routine in penalties. He always, the referee blows his whistle, then he takes an extra breath and he takes the penalty when he is ready. So that is one of the key things that, so, that came to yeah, so just on that, Ben, I mean, and and I've, I've seen that research that uh, Gear published on it. The the probability of scoring is actually quite a lot higher. Like I was looking at the he reports an odds ratio in the range of two, which basically means twice as likely to score if you wait for longer than, the, in this case, the 0.2 seconds that Mbappe took. So that's a significant effect. Do we think that it's the reaction time betrays tension or does taking longer do something actively to improve the likelihood of scoring? In other words, is it a symptom or or the cause of the... the No, it's a great question, Ross. It it is both because um, you are self-regulating, you're modulating your breathing, but you're also giving yourself agency and control over the process. You are not at the mercy of, A, the referee who's telling you when to do it or the goalkeeper who's making Mm. you do it. You're putting the control in your own hands and... In that period, I would hope, reminding yourself of what you need to do to focus on the execution and not the outcome. Because one of the other things that all the players talked about was if I focus on what I need to do, rather than I must not miss, I must not miss, it's more likely to happen. So they are focusing on their run-up, their placement of their foot, when they strike the ball, the power they're going to generate, they know at this point where they're going to kick it. They should know now, five days before the game, where they're going to kick the penalty. Because one of the first things that goes in a stressful situation, it, um, and when you're tired, are your decision-making faculties. I mean, if I wake up in the middle of the night because my dog is barking, I come downstairs at three in the morning, and I make the worst decisions I like let the dog out or I'll give the dog a treat or I'll sit with the dog for an hour for no reason. And I'm like, what am I doing? It's because I'm tired and I'm stressed and I'm not making the right decisions. But if I came up with a strategy now for if this happens, you're going to do, you're going to ignore the dog or just do something else. It's much easier. So the players that are, are doing the walk, and are thinking, should I go left? Should I go right? Maybe I'll just go down the middle. Should I wait for the goalkeeper to move? Should I not? All these decisions, you're not going to execute the skill in an optimal way if you haven't decided what you're going to do. So, so on that note, though, um, how does that feed into what you've described as the two high-level strategies, one being goalkeeper independent, which is what you're talking about here, and the other one, which is what I gather a lot of the skill players do, Neymar, for instance, Lewandowski tried it twice against France and successfully converted the second one, having gotten the chance to have a retake, where they seem to wait for the keeper and almost bait the keeper into going one way and then choose that. So they're reactionary as opposed to proactive, right? Yeah. Uh, this is this is interesting and um, hard work because the goalkeeper-dependent method is, as you say, when Neymar or Lewandowski waits for the goalkeeper to make the first move and goes the other way. And that technically is a much harder skill to pull off than stepping up and just smashing it as hard as you can in a spot that you've already decided. But over a long period of time and looking at lots of data, the goalkeeper-dependent method is actually more successful, even though it's harder to pull off. And in this World Cup alone, that is also true. So in the 
16 penalties that have been taken in open play, uh, actually half have been goalkeeper dependent and half have been goalkeeper independent. And seven out of eight of the goalkeeper dependent penalties, that's waiting for the goalkeeper to move like Neymar, have been scored. And four out of eight of the other types of penalty, goalkeeper independent, have been scored. So it's a very small sample, but you can already see that the elite players are, um, are scoring this way. And what is really interesting is Lewandowski, one of the greatest strike centre forwards in the world at the moment, scored goalkeeper dependent, but he missed a penalty mm. against Mexico the other way, goalkeeper independent. Yeah. And the reason he did that is because two weeks before the tournament, he missed a penalty playing for Barcelona against Almeria and he changed his strategy. And he has an amazing penalty record. He went on a run of scoring 27 penalties in a row. And he developed this kind of smart, almost hybrid goalkeeper dependent, independent method where he'd stutter on the run up and then he'd wait and then he'd wait for the goalie and then he'd go the other way. And he scored so many of, of those. And just because he missed his last penalty, he changed that mm. against Mexico and went goalkeeper independent and his penalty was saved. And then when he was, went back to his tried and tested method, um, he scored it against France. So it is really fascinating to see how the players cope. But I would say when it comes to goalkeeper dependent methods, you do not want to see a player who is not a regular penalty taker trying that method. Because yeah. it is really hard. It is really hard. And in fact, that's what Busquets, the Spain captain, did against Morocco. And he's only ever taken one penalty before in his whole career. And that was for Spain last year in a shootout against Switzerland. And he missed that penalty as well. So you've got a non-frequent penalty taker trying this very complicated, technically hard skill and failing. So what you want to see in a shootout is your players, especially if they're non-regular players, kicking goalkeeper independent. So just on that, because since since this World Cup and since I began reading some of your work and other, other people's analysis of penalties and learning about goalkeeper dependence and independence, sometimes it's not obvious to me, perhaps as a non-expert, that the kicker is sending the keeper the wrong way somehow because Neymar, Lewandowski, obvious. But sometimes it doesn't look to me as obvious, but they've done it. What is the kicker doing? when it's subtle to send the keeper the wrong way? Is it is it something they do with their hips? Is it where their eyes go? Is it their curvature of the run-up? I mean, what, what are they doing technically? Yeah, it's a good question, Ross. It's more likely to be their eyes and their body shape. Um, the obvious ones are the speed of the run-up, right? So when a goal, but, but often that is enough. And even if it, the run-up is slowed down a tiny bit, that allows the, the kicker the opportunity to wait for the goalkeeper. So the clearest way to see it is in the speed of runner. And Messi is a good example. He took his penalties um, in this World Cup, and he had and and his run up is smooth and precise. And he doesn't stop at any point or slow down at any point during his run up. So at the moment, he is kicking goalkeeper independent. And it doesn't always work for him. He's often switching strategies because I think he has still not found his his best way. And, and we know that because he hasn't, you know, he's missed one penalty in this World Cup. Mm. Um, 
So the, the clearest way to see it, and I take your point, sometimes it is quite hard to tell, but if the pace of the run-up is fluid, then normally it's goalkeeper independent. Yeah. Just as a point, uh, uh, an interesting, for those of us who are not soccer savvy, what are the rules regarding, like we talk about Neymar, so he was he was actually, his original um, tactic was he'd almost stop and then let the keeper go and then he'd go, and that was banned by FIFA. What do the rules tell you about how long the goal, you, you talked about how when that whistle goes, they've got that's the time to take the penalty. Is there a limit to when they can take that penalty, like two minutes or a minute or something like that? What are the rules that are involved in that penalty taking? No, I don't think there is a rule to how long you wait. Although, you know, if you wait too long, then you're clearly going to stress yourself out as well as the goalkeeper. Um, there might be something around uh, gentlemanly conduct. So if you wait over 30 seconds, you're going to get booked for just taking the mickey out of it all. Um, but the rule that FIFA changed was that was down to Neymar because he stopped in the run-up. He stopped entirely. The goalkeeper would dive and then he would roll it the other way. And that was seen as total humiliation for the goalkeeper, even more so than a Penenka. And so the kickers are allowed to slow down in their run-up, but they are not allowed to stop. So it's quite a subtle difference. But you see even Neymar and Lewandowski, when they're doing this, they are never they have never stopped. They are just slowing down their movement and their motion, which is partly why it's so difficult to pull off. But the rule is clear. If you stop during your run-up, that is not allowed. And in, in that regard, that's purely goalkeeper dependent then. They are looking for the goalkeeper to move if you 100%. Stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, it's a fake. Well, any any slow run-up, they're watching for the goalkeeper to show any sort of movement. I mean, I mean, again, I'll post a video, but the, the, the one that Neymar did that got him into a bit of trouble was he, he it's almost like he threw a dummy. Mm. He literally, his left foot planted, his right foot was back, and then he paused, and the keeper went right, he went left. Well, he went right because the to the keeper's left anyway yeah there's no rules for instance i know a lot of the players can obviously kick with either side there's no rules where you can start running out from the right and then suddenly switch feet and knock it in but you can do that correct i mean andreas bremer was the most famous example of this in fact there's two two famous examples he scored with his right foot against mexico in the 86 world cup and he scored with his left foot in 1990 in the world cup final uh with, with his other foot and in 1999 in the Women's World Cup final, Brandy Chastain was asked to take the, the final penalty for the USA um, with her with her other foot, with her left foot, because she'd missed a penalty with her um, right foot against the same goalkeeper some months earlier. And she thought, well, the coach actually told her and said it would throw the goalkeeper off if you kick it with your other foot. So she kicked it with her weaker foot and still scored it. So, yeah, you can really mess around with players if, you, if you're totally two-footed. There are a couple of players. Santi Cazorla is my favourite. I think he's the only player who's done a Penenka with both feet, a successful Penenka with both feet. I mean, that really is, uh, you mm-hmm. know, elite. Isn't uh, is, isn't Dembele, the French player, known to take with both feet? He, he may do that and dare yeah, I say, he actually has, against well, England in the next round. Yeah, no, that's a great point, actually. Um, he, Dembele takes corners with both feet. And oh, I think yeah, so in-swinger, yeah. And I think I looked into whether he'd taken a penalty with both feet. I don't think he has, but that was a couple of years ago. I definitely looked into it. Um, He would definitely be capable of of taking a penalty with either foot, for sure. Is is there any data, like in tennis, left-handed servers tend to be more successful. Is there any data that a left-handed kicker performs better than a right? Because it's 
unfamiliar. And I guess this brings us on to there is a natural side for a kicker because if you swing across your body, you can generate more power. So a right-footed kicker to his bottom or, or his left, a left-footed kicker to his right. Makes sense? Yep. Yeah. Totally. And I think the stats bear that out. If you look at the percentage that go left, right versus center, there is slight weighting towards the dominant side. So it's a natural side. Correct. That That is correct. There is a slight weighting towards the natural side. But in terms of success rate, and I'm often asked this, um, there is no statistically significant data that shows that left footers are more likely to be successful than right footers. They're just not. It's just, it just makes no difference. And it, it it seems like there's confirmation bias all the time, because if a, when a left footer scores, I'm always um, messaged. You see, left footers have, have got a better record because they're like South Pauls. They're just harder for goalkeepers to practice against. They're harder to read. And often they're just more skillful players because they're up against it. Um, there's just no data to, to show that at all. It feels like it, it's very similar records. I suppose it would play in there also because a goalkeeper who's right leg dominant and in, in elite competition, you shouldn't have a leg side imbalance that's too large. But in, for most people, you would be more comfortable diving in one direction than another, right? Because you get to push off a stronger leg. And I'm not sure whether that plays into it or whether there's any data on, on dominant side for keepers in performance. Yeah, well, some keepers are um, right-footed and left-handed. Hugo Lloris is a good example of a, of a goalkeeper who is um di differently handed in fact i think he's left-footed and right-handed so, so sometimes you, you get a switch of the goalkeepers but what's interesting with the goalkeepers is um they have had to change their approach because of var so now the rules say you have to have one foot on the line when the the penalty is taken and that has really encouraged them to think about their tactics and their approach in a much more thoughtful way. And even though the data is quite small, I've seen some research that says the conversion rate of penalties in general has gone down over the last four years since this rule came into being. So it's now about 74%. And I said at the top of the show, it's 78%. But in recent years, it's gone down to 74%. And I wonder if there are two things going on here. One is the goalkeepers are coming up with new strategies to stop penalties. And in this age of big data, goalkeepers are now getting an edge rather than the kickers. But the other thing is VAR means that a penalty is awarded, but it's often not kicked until three minutes later. Mm. And so the kicker has much more time to think about, stress about, um, worry about what he's going to do with his penalty. And so... It's very early days in that data, but it's it's interesting that goalkeepers, you'd have thought they'd have a disadvantage because they are having to stay on their line much more, but actually it's coming around towards them now. No, Speaking, just, just a quick one. How much do we know? I mean, how much do we know in terms of teams themselves looking at the mannerisms of a player? In other words, if, if, if there's a goalkeeper that they know is going to be in goal, would they do research into what that person's most dominant side. In other words, when they're, when they're trying to save a goal, do they mostly go right or left? I, and in, and in yeah. terms of, uh, uh, in terms of goal, uh, people kicking goals, do teams research the people most likely to set the penalties and say their most likely direction is going to be across the face of the goal or straight. Yeah. So, so before you, if, if it was me, if I was a keeper, I'd research the kicker. 
Yes. But if I was the kicker, I wouldn't want to know about the keeper, especially if I'm using an independent strategy because it's actually superfluous information. Why? Because if it's in, if my strategy is independence, I'm aiming for a square on the net and it doesn't yes. matter what the keeper does. That's my goal. And if I then overload, especially in a state of fatigue, like Ben said, more information about what that keeper is doing and I create even the slightest doubt that that's the square I should go for. I'm lessening my chance of scoring. So I I suspect the kicker wouldn't want to know, but the keeper would. That would be, be my but if take. You, if, you, if the keeper is somebody that you know but by data research, I, goes I, right, I, top right, you're not going to go for the top right, surely. I, but if, if, I reckon if the player knows the keeper, he's less likely to score. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> well, for a start, no keeper goes top right, so I would always go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, true. No, it's, it, it's a fascinating discussion. And this is like the joy of game theory and penalties yeah, exactly. and, and when it and when the stakes could not be higher because there's World Cups on the line. Um, this is what makes it so interesting. But there are teams that don't have any of this or goalkeepers that don't want to know any of this because they rely on instinct and intuition and luck. And they say, you know what? I'll just, you know, it's a lottery. You can't prepare for it. I would always say that a team that is better prepared, that has practiced with purpose, so that means taking penalties after 120 minutes, walking from the centre circle to the penalty spot. And in fact, when Gus Hiddink was coach of South Korea back in 2002, he would get his players to walk from one penalty spot to the other penalty spot before a penalty to practice. So when it actually came to a shootout, it wouldn't feel so long and scary. Um, and that worked because they won a shootout in that World Cup. But the teams that are better prepared have a better chance of winning. And so I think Jordan Pickford had on his water bottle some names of players and preferred sides they would go to. But even that is not guaranteeing that they're going to go to that way, but it's just their, their preferences. Um, that shows to me that there is thought gone into this the goalkeeper is open to all the outside advantages that they can get to get an edge in this tiny shootout opportunity. And the best prepared teams are more likely to win. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. A couple of questions about the keeper circling back there. It was noticeable to me how much lateral movement the Moroccan keeper was doing before the kick was taken yesterday to the extent that I thought he was taking a risk because he was basically dancing from one side to the next. And if he times that incorrectly, he actually sends himself the wrong way before the kick. Is there is there any evidence on what the best strategy is for the keeper? For instance, stand still or move sideways in the run-up of the kicker? Should he stand in the center and then take half a step to his left or right to show the kicker a slightly larger open side of the goal? Or should he be in the middle? For instance? Um, I think it varies from individual to individual. And goalkeepers... Goalkeeping itself is an individual aspect of the game, even though it's an increasingly important part of, of, of the team moment. And I think every goalkeeper has his own approach. So I've spoken to goalkeepers who want all the data, who want to know as much as they can. And I've spoken to goalkeepers who say, leave me alone. I'm going to look at their eyes, their body language, their, their start of their run up, and I will make my own decision. And I trust myself to do that. I think what the goalkeeper needs is to have momentum when the ball is struck. So if you're static when the ball is struck, you're not going to get to the right side of the goal that you want to go to in time. So there's got to be some type of bouncing or movement 
similar to a tennis player when they're receiving a serve that they they're they're bouncing so their feet are in position when the when the ball arrives to them so there has to be some kind of movement and then it's a question of getting the getting the timing right and getting the decision right because if you dive the right way you are still not guaranteed saving it right i mean if it's struck well you can dive the right way and more often than not you're not going to you're not going to save it so mm. what was it's so impressive with um the moroccan goalie bueno is he dived the right way every time but he saved them every time or well, one mm. hit the post but you know he said he saved the two that he went the right way on and the same as uh Limakovic, the um croatian goalkeeper it's one thing to dive the right way but you've still got to stop the ball and they they managed to do that and partly that's to do with getting the momentum off the the line when the ball is struck you can't be static yeah two two other questions about keepers should the keeper based on what you said a few minutes back about the delay that has been introduced by VAR and potentially its effects on kick success should the keeper stall the striker as long as he possibly can before the ref says get back on your line yeah get in his a, face talk to him yeah, that's a good question, Ross. I mean, I think we're in increasingly seeing players try and get an edge in any way they can, and disruptive behaviour from a goalkeeper is one way of doing that. And it definitely can work. Not always, but it can work. You look at um, Andrew Redmayne, the Australia reserve goalkeeper who came on to, basically for a shootout to qualify Australia for this tournament against Peru. And... He not only danced on the line, which distracted the Peruvian players, but he delayed loads. And that makes a difference. And in fact, for mm. the last penalty that Peru took, I think the player spotted the ball and was waiting 18 seconds before the referee blew his whistle because Redmayne was just knocking around with his water bottle, with his boots, kicking his boots against the post, going on, putting his gloves on again. And these are like tiny little behaviors. 18 seconds is like a very short amount of time, but it can make the difference. And we're seeing more and more disruptive behavior and that can make a difference. I didn't see that much of it in, in the two shootouts we've seen so far. Um, but I think once we get deep in the competition and we see a few more South American teams coming in, we might see like, a, you know, a bit of naughtiness going on. I mean, as soon as uh, Uruguay were awarded a, no, Ghana were awarded a penalty against Uruguay in their group match. And the first thing the Uruguayans did was rush to the spot to try and scuff up the spot to, to you know, to make it difficult for the Ghanaians. So the Ghanaian players had to form a circle around the spot to protect it. So we're seeing two things. One, penalties as a team event now, where <laughs> often the player who is going to take the penalty is away from the action and not being trash talked by um, opponents. So if a player, if a penalty is awarded, a, a, a different player might pick up the ball and stand over the spot. And then he will take all the heat from all the trash talkers and people trying to distract him. And at the last minute, hand over the ball to the actual penalty taker who's had time to re be removed from that stressful situation. Mm -hmm. so we they did see that, that Neymar, didn't they? Brazil yeah. did that. I saw that. I noticed that and I didn't, until now, I hadn't figured out why they did it. Right. So they're mm. using the penalty as a team event and giving all the support they can to their teammate to allow them to prepare the best way possible. Um, and we see it more and more because 
teams are realizing that disruptive behavior can make a tiny difference. And interestingly, during the pandemic, when uh, the Copper America was being played, we could hear what the players were saying to each other. So Argentina had a shootout against Colombia and the Argentina goalkeeper, Emi Martinez, was talking to the Colombian players as they were standing over the ball, about to take their penalty. God, you look nervous. Imagine what happens if you miss. I know which way you're going to go. This is so stressful for you. And then the striker <laughs> missed the penalty. And maybe that happens in all matches and we just can't hear it. But because mm. it was an empty stadium, we were able to hear that. A tiny example of disruptive behaviour that can throw a player off. And right. this is why psychology is so important and so fascinating in the penalty story. Speaking of penalties as a team event, might we see and does it work for a team to bring a cup keeper on in the closing minutes of extra time as a penalty saving specialist? Right. Well, the question, does it work, can only be answered through a rear view mirror, right? It works yeah, if it works. And if it doesn't work, yeah. and if it doesn't work, it looks terrible. I would recommend that that is considered by coaches. And I think some coaches are on side with that. And some coaches are definitely not on side with that. Um, you know, in, in some of these cases, when you've got the, the best eight teams in the world, uh, two of whom have already gone through on penalties, I, I would be very surprised if we see it in this World Cup. Um, but I do think there is value in it. And even if the goalkeeper is not a penalty specialist, but is wants to be considered a penalty specialist or wants you want the opposition to think they're a penalty specialist, then bring him on because that will, again, throw the other players off. And there might be something in their body language that is more powerful or um, their, their physicality, anything. But um, I think it can work, but I don't think we'll see it in this World Cup. But by the same token, we're seeing players come off the bench as kickers mm. uh, and subs to take a penalty. And we saw it in the Spain shootout and they missed the, the two subs who came on essentially to take penalties, missed theirs, but they had amazing penalty records, right? The, the Sarabia who took the first penalty for Spain had scored 16 penalties out of 16 in his career. He never missed a penalty. So you can't say what's the coach doing. He made, he shouldn't have brought him on. Mm. Another player who missed, Soler, has scored 17 out of 19 penalties. So these guys are seriously good from the spot. But the pressure of a World Cup, I also think um, the fact that perhaps they didn't practice with purpose um, has has an impact. But when the stakes are this high, if you are not prepared, it is going to be a problem. And I'm hearing from the France camp that they're saying penalties are a lottery. We don't need to practice. We're chilled about this. So Good news for England, maybe. Well, I, you know, I would say going into a shootout, if England and France went to a shootout, England would have an edge because no team is more prepared mm. than England. Yeah. Oh, what's interesting about that is that we, we were talking to some um, some guys in the lead up to the World Cup and the, the, there's a general consensus that in the in the game of football, the defensive play is becoming more normal than a, than, than a more sort of creative uh, play. But in that respect, if you're going to, if you know you're good at penalties, does that then dictate the way that you play the game? Because you know you have a better chance of getting through on penalties rather than actually scoring goals in open play. Well, it absolutely can do. And that's happened in the past, partly due to the other team not being good rather than you being good. So Portugal played 
England at the World Cup in 2006 and Wayne Rooney was sent off after one hour. So for one hour, Portugal had an extra man, but their goalkeeper told me that they were happy to play for penalties because they felt they had a better chance of winning on penalties than they did of attacking for the for the final hour of the match, even though they had a spare man. And of course, they went on to, to win that shootout and England scored only one penalty out of four in that shootout. So it can happen that way. I mean, I think if you're Croatia, you might think your best chance of beating Brazil is to, you know, is to play for spot kicks and see what happens. Yeah, um, and yeah you so actually, there's something in that for sure. It's kind of sometimes you'll watch games and you'll see there's a fluidity around that decision making. They'll start with every intention of winning it. If they go ahead and then concede and now it's level again, they say, actually, now there's almost a bit of loss aversion going on. Now we go for penalties. The closer you get towards the full-time whistle, the more both sides start to settle for it because the fear of making a mistake and losing becomes the dominant factor driving the decision. So that definitely starts to happen moving into the quarterfinals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just just want to come back to something you said earlier about fatigue and, and quite clearly decision-making is compromised. So is technical skill execution. So therefore, if we looked at penalty success over the course of 90 minutes, even into 120, are penalties in the last 15 minutes less likely to be scored than in the first 15 as a consequence of fatigue? Or do you think the specialist penalty takers there are more immune to its effects? I don't, I don't have the data on that to hand. Um, I think a lot of that is affected by game states. So mm. it depends on what the scoreline is at the time. Um but again, you're dealing with regular penalty takers. So I'm not sure there will be that much yeah. of an effect in, yeah. the, in the success rate. The, the jeopardy comes in when you are bringing in players who've never taken a penalty before for this skill. And that's almost the, you know, right. the, the excitement from, from a spectating point of view. It's like, the, you know, the darkest reality show ever. You are bringing in someone to do something that looks really easy, that is really hard, that they really don't want to do or fail at. And if they do, it's, the, the, you know, the consequences, you know, are, are quite large. So um, it, it's a highly stressful moment for players who are not used to being in that position. Yeah, so my my thought would also be that if someone like Harry Kane or, or the, the best takers are so good at the skill that if there's a fatigue effect, it takes them from 86% to 84%. You'll never find that. It's, it's unmeasurable. But I wonder whether then... A coach wants his penalty takers in a shootout to be the players who've played between 30 and 60 minutes as opposed to the guys who've played for 120 because they're not specialists. Yeah. Um, sub, or, sub or starter, in other words. Who's more I, likely I know, to score? Yeah, yeah. And I, I take that point and I agree with you in certain respects that there are other things going on when it comes to the coach's decisions, right? Not just about how, how, they're, how they cope with the fatigue. It is about what are their levels of com competition anxiety? Mm. How do they react when they have a penalty to avoid defeat in this highly pressured environment? Mm. And whether you're a bit more tired than, than the guy next to you, but actually you're more relaxed mentally and, and you're more equipped to um, execute this skill is, is more important. And there's a really good example of that, which comes from the 2006 World Cup final when Italy went to when Italy went to penalties against France, and Marcello Lippi, the Italy coach, had to decide who to take the fifth penalty, and Francesco Totti, their main 
striker had been subbed off, so he wasn't available. So he could have chosen the captain, who's called Fabio Cannavaro, high status player, uh, excellent player, not penalty expert. Luca Toni, who was a striker who scored loads of goals. Uh, Zambrotta, who's a midfielder who's really experienced, won loads of trophies, played at the top level for years. Or an unknown fullback who had been playing really well in the tournament, but was playing for a lower league team called Fabio Grosso. And he chose Grosso because he felt that he would have the least anxiety around taking this kick. And Grosso scored the winning penalty in a World Cup final because of it. Mm. And I think that was a really interesting and clever decision because one of the other findings from Guy Jordet, who we spoke about earlier, is that if you wear the captain's armband or if you were the superstar of the team, your chances of scoring a penalty in a shootout are lower than the same player before they reach superstar status. So there is an increased expectation, weight of pressure on these players. And so to choose the unheralded unheralded defender over the superstar player um, is a smart move. And World Cup history is littered with these examples. Look at Roberto Baggio, best player in the world, missing the decisive penalty. Mm. Messi missed a penalty last week. Um, loads of top players have missed important penalties in World Cup shootouts for their country. And partly that is because of this superstar status. So would you then suggest that the best penalty takers go one, two, three? as opposed to the current model is stick your best guy. Your, well, it's not your best penalty take. It's your superstar. The superstars always want to go four and five in part, I suspect, because they want the glory of the winning kick. And then oftentimes it doesn't even get to that. Didn't that happen with Ronaldo one time at the correct. Euros? Was it? Correct. Yeah. Absolutely correct. It was 20, it was uh, 2012, I think. Um, and it was Portugal, Spain, and he was slated to kick five and they, they lost before it went to five. So mm. that can absolutely happen. And it is a really risky strategy. And so I would never put your best kick at five. I would put them one. And the numbers show that the most decisive penalty in terms of affecting the result uh, is four as mm. well. So I would put uh, number one and number four as your best two penalty takers and then stack up early doors as well. So your next best two go two and three. Mm. And then I think your fifth best goes five. And then you take it from there. Right. And then here's the last one. Well, maybe not quite a last one. We'll see. Uh, but I'll <laughs> tee this one up for you. I'm watching a penalty shootout now in the coming days, in the last few games of the World Cup. And the team I support, my player scores. What do I want to see from in terms of a celebration? And how does that affect the outcome? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked that because it's something we haven't talked about. But studies, again, show that players who celebrate a scored penalty by raising their arms above their shoulders are more likely to go on and win the shootout. And in fact, we saw it yesterday because every Moroccan player really celebrated. And the Spain players didn't even get a chance to celebrate because they didn't score one. But I noticed it after the first two Moroccan um, penalty takers. And I think partly that might have been because the stadium was heavily pro-Moroccan. There were like loads of Moroccan fans. So they were feeding off that. But they were really going for it. But there are other shootout examples where the players have celebrated up every penalty and the other team have scored a penalty and haven't celebrated and they've gone on to, to lose that shootout. The obvious mm -hmm. one is 
Villarreal against Manchester United in the Europa League final, where every Villarreal player really went for it in celebrating because there is an emotional contagion to celebrations. And so there is a, there's a feeling that body language is so important and that if you score a penalty and don't celebrate, there's no joy, there's no release, there's no euphoria around it. So you might as well, you know, have not scored it. Whereas this sense of um, heightened euphoria can, can actually help. Yes. And so, so what's, so the, theory, asked, what's I, the theory against then if, if that's the celebration is important from the team that scored the goal, how does that affect the opponent then? Well, what's, the, what's the theory? Well, that's what I was getting at is I asked that question because there is a paper. And again, I'll pop this in the show notes. It's called Emotional Contagion in Soccer Penalty Shootouts. Celebration of individual success is associated with ultimate team success. And in the abstract, and you can read the whole paper, I'll give the links. It says, it was more likely that the next kick taken by an opponent was missed after a player displaced these celebration behaviors after goal than when he did not. So not only does your chance, well, I suppose the two are linked, of course, your chances improve, but the guy coming next does worse. Yeah, you're putting him off. And I also think think this is an unscientific um, viewpoint, but I also think a scored Penenka in a shootout has a similar effect. The guy taking a penalty after a scored Penenka is under enormous pressure and often misses. And a Penenka is quite rare in a shootout, but there are two examples. One, um, Italy against England in 2012, which started me on this whole journey. But Pirlo scored a Penenka and the next player to kick it in the shootout for England was Ashley Young and he missed the target. And one day later, um, Sergio Ramos scored a Penenka for Spain and Bruno Alves kicking for Portugal missed the target straight after. So I would say that a scored Penenka has a value of 1.1 goal in a shootout. But if you have the balls to try it, good luck to you. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is when I'm watching, I want to see exuberant over-the-top celebrations from the moment the ball hits the back of the net until that guy gets back to the halfway line because the longer he celebrates, the more he's going to put off the guy on his wall. Yeah, exactly. And you want your player to wait. You want your player to have waited at least three seconds before he's taken it. Uh, You also want the goalkeeper to hand the ball over to the kicker. So there's a handover. Often it comes from the referee or the ball is on the spot. But what you see with England... No other teams have, have done this yet, but I think we might see more of them. Is the goalkeeper hands the ball over to the striker again to show this is a team event, you are not alone. But players often feel very comfortable with a ball at their feet or in their hands when they're around a the ball. I mean, I've got one right now, I'm not a player, but I just feel comfortable when I've got a ball. <laughs> so it's a it's a, it's it's like a comfort for them, and when the um goalkeeper hands on that ball they get it quicker than they would otherwise and and it's more active it's a more um it's a moment of agency and control and owning the shootout i'm going to hand you the ball this is what we're going to do we're going to be in control of this situation so you want to see your goalkeeper hand the ball over you want to see your players spot the ball walk backwards but always keeping their eye on the goal so not turning away from the goal because that is also a study that's been done which is called gaze avoidance because when you turn your back on the goal when you turn your back on the goal you walk back to your spot when you turn around oh my god the goal looks so small right because you've taken your eye off the goal so players often say i turn my back and england players did this a lot in the 90s and the and the 2000s they would spot the ball they would turn around, Waddle did it, Pierce did it, Lampard did it, Ince did it. They all missed penalties. They turn around and when they turn back, 
And oh my God, this goal has shrunk. And suddenly it's a much harder task. So you want to see your player spot the ball and go backwards, but always keeping in sight of the goal, no gaze avoidance. And then you want them to wait a couple of seconds. You don't want them to go goalkeeper dependent if they are not regular takers. You want them to go goalkeeper independent. And then of course you want them to celebrate their penalty. Are there Easy. any other are there any other sort of universal <laughs> ticks? I know like with interpreting body language, it's so fraught with di- uh, difficulty because certain people have habits. They'll fidget with the shirt. They'll look at the ref. They'll yeah. they'll fix up their hair. They'll do all sorts of things. I mean, I'm thinking tennis now. Like if you analyze Nadal compared to Federer, you'd think one was ang- anxious to like create like crazy, but the other one's super calm. Are there any, but are there any other ticks that a player betrays in the walk? at the top of the mark as he's about to commence the runner that would make you go, Oh, here comes a miss. And, and just out of interest, and I know this is sort of maybe hindsight bias. How, how good are you at predicting where the guy's going to score based on that last camera shot of him before he kicks it? Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, I'm quite good, but I'm not, I am fallible. I'm not an expert. Uh, so I, I do call it wrong sometimes but I feel like I get it right more than I get it wrong. Um, I always get a bit nervous when the player is looking at the ref. Because mm. again, that is not in control. You're, you're waiting for someone else. And if you're purely focused on the moment, you should be looking at the ball, thinking about what you're going to be doing and not just kind of nervously waiting for the ref. But the, the, big, te- the big tell is the reaction time. And you can just, it's very clear to see that just by watching. The referee blows, if he goes very quickly, I'm a bit twitchy. I, I am a bit twitchy about that. I'd also be looking for that breath because there's no yeah. doubt that calms the player down. So yeah. if you, and I mean, I, I must be honest, I don't like the angle they sh- they film penalty shootouts from now. I'd rather see the replay from behind and the actual pen from the side. But anyway, if you can see him take that breath. Yeah, I agree. And it's also a huge frustration for me that the TV directors always pan in on some random fan who's looking nervous. Like everyone's looking nervous. Let's see the players. So after a goal goes in, we see some celebrating fans. I want to see the players celebrate and I want to see what his teammates are doing. And I want to see what the coach is doing. So I just want the action purely on that area around the 18-yard box, nothing else. But it's really hard to see. And as you said, the, the camera angle at the moment is kind of frustrating. Uh, we're seeing like a probably from a drone behind the kicker's uh, head. Mm. But... I like a kind of wider angle so I can see more of what's going on. It's quite difficult to see exactly what's going on. And you, and you want to capture it because you want to know what people are thinking. This is human drama at its most visceral. This is sport, national identity, uh, pressure, all the things that we love about sport distilled into this really compelling, dramatic Five minute spell, and I just want to see as much of it as possible. Well, I can't wait for a pen to shoot up now. So <laughs> I'm bring them on, bring them on, Mike. Uh, yeah, look, right. Ben, from me, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Three quick questions from me, and they're, they're probably quite easy for you to answer, but we'll give it a bash. Whenever I think about penalty shootouts, the one that always sticks in my brain is the most famous is Roberto Baggio. You mentioned him already. 1994, kicks one way over the posts. I remember seeing a cartoon in a newspaper, and I was only 14 years old when this happened, but watching a guy on a a rocket out in space and seeing this ball disappearing into (laughs) space. Uh, I'd like to know your opinion on the most famous missed penalty. Would you agree with Badger being the most famous? 
Well, it is the most iconic, yeah, because it was the penalty that missed a World Cup. It was the first final to go to penalties. But let's not forget that Bajo was injured basically at that game. Um, he had scored, he had got Italy to the final. Uh, he'd scored in the quarterfinals, he'd scored in the semifinals, and then he went off injured. There was this big dilemma about whether he'd play or not. On the morning of the game, he declared himself fit. But during the match, it was clear that he was really below par. He was not 100%. And it was baking hot. It was like 90 degrees in California mm. um, on that day. So he was really not 100% for when that shootout came around. But also, Italy had already missed two penalties in that shootout. One was the captain, Franco Baresi, who'd also just recovered from an ACL surgery like 20 days earlier. Um, and he missed a penalty. And a striker from Milan, Daniele Massaro, had also missed a penalty. But of course, we remember Baggio's because he was the best player in the world. So that penalty encapsulates the pain and stress of penalties. The best player in the world can miss a penalty. Yeah. And he's missing it to avoid defeat. And when you are missing it to avoid defeat, your chances of scoring are far reduced because the pressure is so much higher. So there are all these things going on. And the iconography around it with Taffarel on his knees, celebrating in kind of with a religious fervor, Adjo hands on his hips, looking down at the spot. I mean, it just is so evocative and powerful that it has to be, um, yeah, the, the most famous penalty scored or missed, I think, in World Cup history. Uh, and I think to some extent you, you would argue that that uh, that was, if anybody would look back on Badger's career, that would be the, the, the thing that he's the most famous for, despite the fact that he was probably the greatest player of that generation. Yeah, exactly. He was that's the Messi really, of, the, of the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in fact, yeah. I think throughout his career, he, he, had, he was brilliant at penalties, by the way. His overall penalty record was, I think, over, um, over 80% conversion rate. He scored a penalty on his debut when he was 16 years old. So penalties he was brilliant at. Um, but he didn't that, win that many trophies. And I think... He lost three World Cup, shoot three tournament shootouts with Italy as well. So there's this real sense about his career reaching highs, but also having loads of lows. And it was part of kind of the reason why he was so adored and so loved was that he was not a serial winner. He suffered like everyone else suffers. And sport is a metaphor for life and penalties is a metaphor for life. Sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. But all we can do is uh, is keep going. Yeah. And then my final, I guess the last question is a two-pronged one. Do we know who the best penalty taker is in recent history? And do we know who the best penalty saver is in the in recent history? I mean, do, can we look at history in total or can we look at the last 20 years, for instance? Um, yeah, I don't have the numbers for that. So I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um I think Diego Alves, a, a Brazilian goalkeeper who was at Valencia, was the best saver of penalties um, in recent years. Um, in terms of strikers, I, I, I really couldn't tell you for for the for the actual numbers. But um, uh, no, I'm sorry, but I I wouldn't want I wouldn't want Messi taking a penalty for my team if if it came to. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, if it was your team, I want him in my team for everything else, but not, but not for a penalty. So, who, who, who would you want to be the, your your oh, number, your number, number four, four in your team, in your international team? Well, Harry, I think Harry I want, Kane's good, no? I, I, think I, want, 
I think I want you and Ross at the moment at this stage. You seem to know <laughs> you seem to know a lot more about this than than they do. Um, I think Kane would be definitely up there. Uh, I think Ronaldo is actually clutch in these situations. If you'll excuse the Americanism. Um, who else would you have in there? I'd need to think about this a bit more, but um has Mbappe learned any lessons? He missed he missed well, the one you spoke of earlier, but has he has he figured out not to wait? I don't time? know. I don't know. We'll see. Because mm. I don't think he's taken a penalty with this much pressure on before. So I'm fascinated to see uh what happens. But you know, France have got some penalty takers that have had problems. I think Griezmann has missed six of his last eight penalties, and he went on a run of missing five in a row, including three in a row for France. So, you know, it is, it is really fascinating. And the joy of all this is that it is unpredictable. So I can tell you which players, you know, I'd like to see take penalties. They could, they could just as easily miss as well. We simply don't know. And that is what makes it so exciting. But not a lottery. Unpredictable, but not a lottery. Correct. <laughs> ben Littleton, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And uh, I, I, I hate, uh, players will probably hate me for saying this, but uh, I'm looking forward to my next penalty, whether it's a shootout or just in open play, because uh, I will certainly look on it with uh, fresh eyes. So thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the World Cup. You too, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>